Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on February 1st, is a conversation with Walt Rakovich, who's the author of the new book on leadership called Transfluence, How to Lead with Transformative Influence in Today's Climates of Change. Walt is also the prior CEO of Prologis, the global industrial REIT in which he led the successful merger with AMB, where he was co-CEO with Hamid Mogadam, who after Walt's retirement remains the CEO of the company, now the leading global owner of logistics facilities. Leading Voices is a podcast about leadership in the real estate business. We've heard many stories from our guests of their career journeys into leadership, but we've never really spent one of these hours focused on leadership itself, which is the subject of Walt's book. Since Walt spent his career in real estate, we'll still follow our typical format of career journey, but as he does in his book, we linger, tell stories, and find lessons from those crucible experience that form the crux of the servant leadership philosophy that Walt calls transfluence. As you'll be able to tell in our conversation, Walt's approach resonates deeply with me on my own leadership style, both with how I work with my team and how I approach our work as advisors to our clients and candidates. You can find out more about Walt on his website, waltrakovich.com, or buy his book anywhere, but of course also on Amazon. We'll include information in our show notes. Transfluence is a book that I highly recommend and thoroughly enjoyed. Focusing this episode on a discussion about leadership in the context of a leading real estate CEO's career resonates deeply with what I do in my day job. At TerraSearch Partners, my team and I are advisors to our clients, recruiting executive talent to lead high-performing teams. Our business hinges on helping clients bring in the right talent with deep context for the role and the company culture. In this episode, both Walt and I talk about the importance of the journey, not just the outcome which is a core part of the TerraSearch approach to the business. For more information, you can find us at terrasearchpartners.com. Thanks for listening in to Leading Voices. I ask you, and I think most episodes, that if you're enjoying the show, please recommend your favorite episode to a friend. Please subscribe and do rate us on the Apple Podcast app. If you have comments or questions, please email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Walt. First of all, Walt Rakovich, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And Leading Voices started as a podcast about leadership in the real estate business. And we've wound up talking a whole lot more about the real estate business than we've talked about leadership through these conversations. We talk about people's journeys towards leadership, which has really been the topic of, of this. But you just wrote a book on leadership. You're a retired CEO of Prologis. You're on four or five boards. So I think today's really going to be a conversation about leadership and your thinking and your experience and how you got to those thoughts. Well, I think it is too. I hope it is at least. But I would also say that, you know, let's interject some real estate things in there too, because uh, your audience loves real estate and I loved it too. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And also what we'll do through the conversation, I think, is talk through your history because your history is in the real estate business. And I want to pull out as you talk through your career and your career journey, where you were in your leadership journey during each of those points in time, and then how this came together for you, which for me is just absolutely fascinating because I find it's something that evolves within me, not something I'm necessarily born with. And it comes from my experiences as well as my evolution. So therein lies where real estate fits into this in a really big way. 
There you go. I like it. But talk a little bit about just so we have a sense of where you are, what you do right now. Since retiring from Prologis, what are your different assignments and how did writing a book fit into that? So I would say I probably spent a third of my time on corporate boards. On three boards, your listeners would be familiar with, I think, all three companies. One is Host Hotels, who owns really high-quality, upper-upscale hotels throughout the United States, predominantly. Mm -hmm. Still some internationally, but coming back to just the U.S. for the majority of their uh, portfolio. Mm -hmm. I'm on the board of Iron Mountain. They're in the information storage business, which most recently really would be data storage facilities. And I'm on the board of Ventas, who is an owner of senior housing, medical office buildings, life science facilities, terrific company. And I'm also on the board of Penn State University, which is one of the largest public universities in the world and happens to be my alma mater, which I deeply love. And you might think that I'm crazy, Matt, but interestingly enough, I'm the audit committee chairman on all four boards. (laughs) And so I don't know if that's good or bad, but many of your listeners probably chuckle at that. Like, I can't believe he's subjected himself to that kind of abuse. But, you know, and I would say this, I, I, I really love board work because of two things, really. One, I think I can add a lot of value to companies based on the experiences that I had at Prologis, but in particular in real estate period. But I also think in terms of what I get out of it, I mean, it keeps me keeps me in the game. You know, it keeps me um, understanding the things that corporate America is dealing with today, helps me to triangulate all of the important things together into a narrative that I think ultimately can help leaders because I see what's going on in the boardroom, you know, itself. And then you, you also asked me about then why the book? You know, I would say this. I think the world has been shaped over time by leadership, both good and bad. And throughout my life, I've tried to be a student of it. I've tried to learn about how I can become a better leader. And as I moved up in my career throughout the organization, that became more and more helpful to me. Quite frankly, I think there's a void in leadership today. And, you know, I I think America in particular, but but really throughout the world, we, we don't trust our leaders like we could or should. Look at politicians, look at corporate America, <laughs> yep. I, you know, look at the police, you know, you name it, we don't trust it anymore. Is that because of social media or is that because of bad leadership? I don't know. I mean, there's a number of different reasons, but I felt it was time to write the book because I had, as you know, I had a crucible moment in my leadership career. And I truly believe that the world is craving authentic leadership today, craving it. And I think a lot of leaders miss the mark in that regard. And I just felt that, you know, it was time for me to write, put down my feelings in writing. And I, I felt like I had that crucible moment where I had to really think about how I led as a person. And I wanted to document it because at the end of the day, I wanted to impart whatever wisdom I have in the last third of my life Fair to deal. those who are in the first third or the second third of their lives. Uh-huh. Well, we're going to talk all about it. I finished the book, as I told you before, last night and um, love the book because there was so much in there I could relate to the people I talk to, the people I deal with, but then also my own leadership journey. And I'll interject some of my own thoughts on on those subjects as we talk through here. But let me ask a couple of questions on the things that you said. So one is, 
all those four boards, only a third of your time. So you're able to be quite efficient there. But one thing I find in board participation is it makes you think at a higher level. You can always be more strategic in the board. It pushes your thought process up and your wisdom to have to come in at a certain level. Really different than being a CEO. Totally different. I think there's a time and place in your life for being a CEO. And I enjoyed being a CEO. But boy, I'll tell you, the pressure associated with it, the day-to-day pressure is something that is you know, for certain people and not for other people. Um, I would say that being on a board, you're right. You're always thinking strategically and you frankly can help people make decisions, but then you can leave and someone else implements it. <laughs> and to a certain degree, there's something e- much easier about that. Not to say that board work is easy. It's not easy, but it's not the same level of intensity as being a CEO or running a company or or being a leader in a company of a large flock of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. So you grew up in Pennsylvania and you grew up with uh, kind of in modest circumstances. So just talk a little bit about that and then kind of how that launched you into your career. Yeah. So first of all, I did grow up in very modest circumstances, as, as you mentioned, in Pittsburgh. I'm the grandson. My parents were sons and daughters of European immigrants and they were not born in the United States too long after their parents came over. My mother's parents were from Italy. My dad's from Poland and Russian, Russia. And, you know, when I talk about my parents, the best way I can summarize it is by saying, Matt, that I hit the parent lottery. I really did. We did not have any financial wealth whatsoever. We, you know, we lived paycheck to paycheck. But there was an incredible wealth of love and support in my family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents were really, really hardworking. They both had to work and they appreciated what they had, but they appreciated people not for what they had, but who they were. Mm-hmm. And they were incredibly genuine people, loving and genuine people. And quite frankly, looking back on it, that had an amazing impact on my leadership philosophy in my life. I truly believe that my parents were the most influential beings in my life and they made a difference. Mm -hmm. You're blessed in that. I'm blessed in that. And it's funny because as you talked about leadership at the beginning of the conversation, I think of the word modeling behavior as much as leadership. And if you have parents who do that, they're not leaders per se, but they're modeling behavior patterns and values for you that you take forward for your whole life. Yep, absolutely. And they modeled it every day to me. And as, as you mentioned, I, I went to, then I went to Penn State University and part of it was, you know, it was a state university that was reasonably close to my home and they had a great football team. So what was not like about it? I majored in accounting, which is one of the reasons why I think I'm the chairman of the audit committee on all yep. four boards. In one. You know, I, Penn State had a great accounting program and it was, it was a good thing for me. Plus jobs were plentiful in accounting coming out in 1979, which was not an easy time to be graduating from undergraduate school. And I just love that, that, that experience there in Happy Valley. So I came out and I went to work for Price Waterhouse. And I worked for that company for four years, passed my CPA exam. And, you know, after four years, I just woke up one day, maybe it was really after three, and I just decided that I didn't want to count somebody else's beans anymore mm-hmm. um, with the green eye shade. I wanted to count my own beans. I wanted to create my own wealth, if you will. I wanted to do my own thing. And, and I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so frankly, it was time to, and by the way, all my friends that were leaving Pricewaterhouse at the time were all going, they were all taking accounting jobs because that's Mm -hmm. what they did. 
Mm-hmm. They were controller in the company. Maybe they were even a chief financial officer in a small company, but and I just didn't want to do that, you know. And so I just decided to go back to business school. And the reasons for that were that, you know, one, I needed to reposition myself and not be an accountant anymore, if you will. And yeah. and I needed to get exposed to new things in life, you know, like what were the opportunities that were out there? I didn't know. I was too busy working. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. I, I was able to get into Harvard Business School, moved to Boston for a few years, and was one of the best experiences that I, I could have. Uh-huh. I had no exposure whatsoever to real estate until I got to Harvard Business School. And I, I had a section mate there that was there that was working in real estate before they came to HBS. And I started talking to that person about it. As I said, I used to say to people all the time, you know, I would have been a horrible software developer <laughs> because I'm not the kind of person that, I mean, I have to touch and feel everything I do. Mm-hmm. I'm a visual person. And the one appeal about real estate was that I could see it. Mm-hmm. I could touch it. I could feel it. I could buy a piece of land. I could design a building as a developer and watch it go up and lease it and actually have my heart and soul in it because I could touch it and feel it and say, mm-hmm. is that what I really wanted to do? You mm-hmm. know, And I just loved the tangibility of the business. And I did a summer internship in the business. And in between my first and second years of business school, I just absolutely loved it even more after the first year. And I said, man, that is what I want to do. And here it is, you know, over 30 years later, and I'm still doing the same, or yeah, I'm still doing the same thing. I was at Prologis, still on the board of real estate companies. Of course. And I'm so, I'm so glad I did because, you know, at the end of the day, the people in the business are phenomenal people. And looking back on it, it was a, I believe it was a great career decision. Yeah, really good decision. I, we're happy you did. It, it's interesting because some of the themes you said already, I hear, you know, I interview people for a living, not just on the podcast, of course, right? And accounting people yeah. all say the same thing. A, there's jobs. B, I'm good with numbers. And yeah. then they come into real estate and they go, hey, it's tangible. And then C, it's a relationship business. And it really yeah. is. It's not the buildings. It's the people that makes the industry work so well. Absolutely. Um, a relationship business. And I saw that live and in Technicolor when I took my first job at Trammell Crow Company. Mm-hmm. It was the most fun looking back on it, interestingly enough. And I say this, notwithstanding the fact that I ran Prologis and I tried to create a terrific culture there, but I think it was the most fun job I ever had in my life. When I went to work for Trammell Crow Company in the early years, I'm just out of business school. I'm 25 or 26 years old. Uh-huh. And you know what? I met one of the best bosses I had, I maybe had, people ask me all the time, who was the best boss you ever had? I say, well, it was a guy named Hayden Eves. Uh-huh. I actually hope he's watching this, but if he isn't, he is um, really one of the greatest guys I ever worked for in my life. And it's because he treated people with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. He was bright. Don't get me wrong. Very bright guy. But he taught me that success was not defined by brilliance. It was defined by how you treat people. Mm. Totally true. And also the influence that don't underestimate, and this relates to transfluence, the influence that you have on them. Mm -hmm. So he came to work every day and his mantra was, I'm going to teach you this business because I I love you and I want you to know what this business is all about. I want you to succeed. And ultimately, if you succeed, you'll help me to succeed. But he never even needed to say that second part of it because mm-hmm. it was all about you. Mm-hmm. How can I help you succeed? So you come into Trammell Crow company organization, what product type, what location, 
Right. Yeah. So I, uh, after I graduated from business school, I took a job with Crow in Southern California. Mm-hmm. People ask me all the time again, how did you get in the industrial business? Well, if you think about the fact that in Southern California, 40% of all shipments into and out of the United States flow through the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that our business, Trammell Crow's business in LA was going to be predominantly industrial. And that's what it was. Uh, Don't get me wrong. We built office buildings and we built retail centers. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that the bread and butter of the business, and frankly, if you look back in Trammell Crow, period, Mm -hmm. Crow got a start in the industrial business. And that's what they built terrific warehouses, Mm -hmm. established relationships with companies globally and um, or nationally. And Mm -hmm. they built the best product in the country with really good people. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I I can remember coming. And I didn't even know that. Funny thing is, You'd have thought that I'd ask that question. No, no. I, I come out to LA the first day on the job and my partner says to me, well, I want you to lease warehouse space. And I'm thinking to myself, some prima donna out of business school, you know, really, I've got an MBA. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you understand it's 80% of our entire business here. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, I met some unbelievably terrific people. It actually fit my style or it fit my upbringing. Right. Which was, as you mentioned, was not a glamorous upbringing. And it was blue collar at its best. Blue collar at at its best because who you're leasing to, who you're talking to, who you have to deal with? Every day. Yeah. Who you're leasing to, who you're talking to every day. It's they're people that they're not in the business for glamour. Mm -hmm. Or if they were, they wouldn't be building warehouses or they wouldn't be leasing warehouses. They wouldn't be looking as a logistician at warehouse space. Right. And so, yeah, the people that I dealt with were terrific, fun. Mm -hmm. People that you could have a beer with at night, you know, you could smoke a cigar with from mm-hmm. time to time. And I just really enjoyed that aspect of the business. And I was so glad that I got into that uh, property type. And interestingly enough, I never left it. Right. I never left it because I went from Trammell Crow ultimately to, to Security Capital, you mentioned, which is was ultimately Prologis. It was a phenomenal opportunity for me. The other thing, though, I would say is about real estate and your listeners, I think, will probably be able to relate to this is Trammell Crow is a partnership format. Mm-hmm. So this is different than owning a stock and working for a company. Yes, it was a company. It happened to be one of the largest real estate companies. But really what it was, was a series of partnerships. And I learned about the downside of real estate during that same period of time. Mm-hmm. And I learned the downside about having too much leverage. Mm-hmm. And back then, uh, you know, real estate wasn't leveraged at 60% or 50%. It was leveraged at 90%. Or All the way. So by definition, when it's leveraged at 90% and the values go down 10%, you're wiped out. Mm-hmm. And um you know, we were, frankly, we're doing my first development. And my first development was, uh, unfortunately, a development that really never got off the ground. And we had signed an agreement to buy a piece of land that, uh, and, and the market had fallen apart. And um, they were ready to come after us, the, the, the seller of the land. And my only recourse was to declare bankruptcy. And it, it turned out we got bailed out at the last minute. And I didn't have to declare bankruptcy, but I did have to go home and tell my wife, on a couple of occasions that we were close. And wait, distinguish between the we and Trammell Crow Company at that moment. So personally, you were about to declare bankruptcy. You're in your late 20s. You're doing a deal from the ground up. It That's went right. bad. You're in trouble. That's right. Myself and my partners. That's right. It wasn't Trammell Crow Company. It was various partners within the company that I had an ownership interest with in this project. But by the way, 
the whole market was cratering. Right. So there were some of the higher partners had not just one project like me, they had hundreds of projects. They had their <laughs> own challenges. They had their, they had bigger challenges, bigger fish to fry. But I would say this, I'm, I'm an optimist overall, Matt, I always have been. And, you know, we're going to talk about this. I know when we get into Prologis, but right. I believe that our greatest lessons in life come from our most crucible moments. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes the best thing that can happen is to be brought to your knees. And in my case, I was brought to my knees in prayer. And I have to tell you that my faith at that point in time in my life became my rock. And frankly, I've relied on it ever since. And so I look back on that and I, that time, that crucible moment, and I obviously had another one at Prologis, but that crucible moment is when I learned the most. And I would say to those of your listeners that are listening in on the real estate side of the business, if you decide to do a private deal or two, know that you could lose money, you could lose your shirt in my case, mm-hmm. but also know that don't ever waste a crisis. I actually think you'll learn the most during crises and uh, learn the most about yourself, the people you work with, and how to deal with situations. Let me come back to your, I got so many questions I want to keep coming back to, but let me come <laughs> back to your comment about prayer, because I can't pray, it doesn't do me any good in my case, but I go yeah. back to a North Star. I go back to values, I go back to what I care about, I go back to what is meaningful and what is consistent, and maybe yeah. that's almost exactly the same thing. Well, I think it is. I think we all need to have a rock in life, and this certainly isn't, isn't I, this was never set up to be a spiritual conversation, so I won't okay. go much further. But for me, my rock is, is my creator. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that rock allows me to deal with anything and everything in life. It just does in a much more consistent and straightforward way. And my highs are a little less high than they would be. Uh And my lows are a little less low than they would be. And I think in terms of managing people Uh and managing an organization through the crucible moment, at least that I had to, Uh uh, I I really needed that rock. And I I would just, my only advice would be that find your rock. That's right. I think we all need it. And for me, that message is that rock need not be a spiritual God, but that rock, because it's interesting as I think of it, when I go into my place, it also takes off the highs. I, mean, I don't want the highs to be taken off too much, but the, it takes away the lows because it keeps it on track and in perspective, wherever you find it. Hey, I want to go back to another abrupt change, but I want to go back to another thing that you mentioned about Hayden Eves. Because I think one of the things he said was he cared about us. He wanted to teach you the business. He loved you. And I think there's a model within that culture of the Trammell Crow culture, which we've had on the podcast a bunch of times, particularly from Trammell Crow Residential, but the same business model, which was you hire really, really smart people with great potential. You put them way down at the bottom, and then you give them all the love so they can succeed so you can succeed. What a virtuous model that is. It was a virtuous model. And I and it, it wasn't the model that did Trammel Crow in. Right. It was the, the, the leverage that did Trammel Crow in. Because if you look at it, the company itself had built one whale of a company um, with really some of the smartest people. It's, it's really become the university of real estate, I think. That's right. Um, and that uh, partnership model is the essential model that actually most of the real estate companies have come out of and the experience yeah. of uh, leaders of our generation have come out of that model. That's right. Yep. So talk about moving from there onto what was then security capital and what your role was there and your yeah. evolution. 
So I had been with Trammell Crowe for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was nine, right. but it was in that neighborhood. And I actually left for a year. I wanted to, the market was just so bad Horrible. for real estate. Yep. Horrible. 1993, really bad. Nobody was doing anything. And then the public markets in real estate began to thrive because look, anytime you can buy real estate at 50 cents in the dollar or anything at 50 cents in the dollar, public money begins to rush in. Mm-hmm. And all these public companies began to sprout up, one of which was Security Capital Industrial. And that company was really put together in order to buy distressed industrial real estate. Yep. And predominantly bought it in the Western United States originally. Yep. And that company came to me and, and ended up hiring me. And so I took the job. I was still living in Southern California. We decided to take the job, move to the Midwest, and and really build the company's operations east of the Mississippi. Hmm. But then turned out to be northeast of the Mississippi, because really my region, as the company grew, became the Midwest and Atlantic coast. And Uh so I grew there. So I was the first person in Prologis to do all of that. There was nobody, for that matter, that was focused on any of the Midwest cities. And so I built pretty much all those cities. I mean, I hired all the people, bought the land, started to hire the contractors, build buildings, acquire buildings. And then as we got bigger and bigger, I started managing the flock in each city that did that. And, um, you know, lo and behold, after five years of running that operation, I think my region alone was a couple of billion dollars and the company was maybe close to 10 billion at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was thought I was set. I was just, you know, I was having fun. I was doing the things I wanted to do in real estate. And I got a call from the CEO and he said, Hey, I'd like you to move to Denver, which is where we're headquartered and become the corporate chief financial officer. And I I have to tell you, I'm almost puked at that. I, I, I mean, (laughs) no, I want to be, I mean, you know, he's like, well, you'd be one of the top three or four people in the company. I said, no, no, I, I I just want to do real estate, man. I'm having fun. You know, I I like, I don't want to put the green eye shades back on. I don't want to, you know, have to fly to wall street and talk to them about the company. I want to do it, man. I want to do real estate, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, well, you don't understand. You need to do this. And and actually my wife ended up talking me into it. And I did come to Denver. I became the corporate chief financial officer for six years. Mm -hmm. So Walt, so, okay. Then you took that, you almost puked, but you didn't quite, you come and take that corporate job. And I view that as a, not a crucible moment, maybe, but a fulcrum moment because you changed everything and you changed from being close to the real estate and being a doer there to a corporate role. Yeah. And how did that change your both leadership view? Because now you're looking at the whole company all the time versus yeah. being a production. I don't know the right words to this, but describe the differential there, particularly in your leadership journey. Well, you know, I, the people that I led had just completely different disciplines and disciplines that I didn't know much about. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I was an accountant way back when as a CPA, but now I had to manage IT people. I had to manage investor relations. I knew nothing about that. Mm-hmm. I had to manage tax, didn't know that much about that. You know, I had to ma- manage capital markets, treasury, I knew nothing about that, Uh you know? And so I had a plethora of different people, plus Prologis, by the time I became CFO, we were global. And so I had to manage, I had the largest block of people in the company to manage. Probably I'd say 50 to 60% of all personnel fell underneath the CFO at Prologis. And so 
the right. clock was just much bigger mm-hmm. and it was less you know focused on the day-to-day operations and much more focused on the back office and building the backbone of the company if you will mm-hmm. and yeah that was hard that was I'd say the first couple of years especially were really hard because I, I went from being in what I consider to be an entrepreneurial role, whether right. it be a trend pro or even the first five years at, at Prologis, it was totally entrepreneurial. <laughs> Going out, meeting, meeting brokers, buying land, you know, underwriting deals, you know, selling buildings, meeting with contractors, building con- building on stuff to right. all of a sudden managing IR people. I mean, that that's like totally different, right? And so I'm wondering, and I, I think of this, again, I use the word fulcrum, but I think of the, all the stuff that you did before matters. You bring that to the table, but then you have to transition from the both the behaviors that make a successful hands-on person or a successful producer, if that's the right word, to becoming yeah. a corporate person. You need to, that experience helps but now yeah. your mindset changes. Maybe you're now going back to Harvard Business School of the broader things that you learned you had to call upon. Yeah, and but one of the things that was really cool to me is, you know, companies tend to promote people over time that they shouldn't promote. Mm-hmm. And the one thing yeah. I've seen is when somebody's a rainmaker, well, that just means they're getting promoted to the next position. And the problem is that when you start getting into that role as the CFO and the president, chief operating officer, and the CEO, right. you don't need people to make rain. Right. You need people who can pay attention to other people who are making the rain. Right. Okay. The challenge for me, which I loved it and I accepted it, was I had to go from being a rainmaker yep. to being a manager, yep. to being a, 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 like you, you, you might say, some people might say an administrator. And some people, you know, turn their nose up and they say, well, I would never want to be that. Mm-hmm. But that was, the, that was the cool part of it to me was that it was a challenge because I had to be somebody, I had to find out if I could actually be somebody else. Right. Or I had to find that inner strength in me that, that would say, okay, how do I change from not needing to do the deal anymore right. to really just caring about people mm-hmm. really at the end of the day and having a vision. Mm-hmm. You have to have a vision and you got to marshal the resources to get to that vision. That's so much more difficult to do. I'd love to dive into CFO, but I'm so curious because the next part of the story is when the company started going bad. And I want to talk, I want you to kind of get to that. And you also mentioned people who get promoted, maybe they shouldn't be promoted because they're rainmakers. And I'm going to think that maybe your corporate culture and rainmaker might be what clashed that was an essential issue here. Yeah. So, so right after that, I was promoted to be the president chief operating officer of the company, basically the number two person in the company. Mm -hmm. So think of it this way, over the first 15 years up to that point, um, Prologis was an amazing growth story. We had an average shareholder return of, I think, 19% over the first 15 years, 14 to 15 years of the life of the company, Mm -hmm. exactly when 2008 hit, I don't remember. But I mean, it was an unbelievable, and, and we grew our assets from nothing, $100 million to $50 billion, mm-hmm. you know, so it was amazing. But by 2007, the year before the downturn, one year before the collapse, things were starting to look different. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our culture was changing. From the outside looking in, it looked still pretty good. Our stock price had risen over that 14-year period of time from, I think we went public at $10 a share, roughly, and we were trading at $75 a share after paying out a 5% dividend every year, I mean, you do the math, that's mm-hmm. a hell of a return. So from the outside looking in, our stock price is trading at all time high. From the inside looking out, we were a disaster ready to happen. Mm-hmm. 
and I loved the, you know, our CEO had been in the position for a couple of years. And because there was a leadership succession when you became president and COO, was that when the founding CEO had retired? Yes. And then at that same year, the person who had run our international operations was asked to become CEO. Yep. And we were partners together for the first couple of years and, and it went okay. And he was truly one of the most brilliant people that I ever met. Mm-hmm. We were really smart guy. His name Jeff Schwartz. Yep. But you know, he had some management shortcomings and the culture I think was beginning to reflect it. You know, I of all Jeff's strong suits, one wasn't listening mm-hmm. to other people because he felt that he knew the answer. Um, and unfortunately, we began to make mistakes in the company. We began to over leverage the company against the wishes of the CFO, which wasn't me at the time. And I won't go through all the details, Matt, but the fact of the matter is that the culture changed and it wasn't really a culture of openness and transparency. It was more of a culture changing to a culture, in my view, of insecurity and arrogance. Mm-hmm. In some respects, we, we began to become so large and do so many things throughout the world. It was almost like, well, we can't make a mistake. Well, that's not true. We can. And some days I felt isolated. I felt like, you know, I, I would go to Jeff and say, look, Jeff, I don't think we should be doing this. And I just didn't feel like, you know, I, I was being listened to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there were other people in the organization that didn't as well. So, and you know, what ends up happening in management when that happens, people act in silos you know, they, they don't communicate as a team. And we didn't talk in the open. We talked behind closed doors. And, and it just wasn't this whole openness and communicative a- atmosphere. And we overpaid for assets. And as I mentioned, we, we overleveraged the company and we just had made a lot of mistakes in 07 and leading into 08, I thought. And I saw that. And I saw the, the damage, the collateral damage uh-huh. that that was doing in the company. All the while, our stock is trading at an all-time high. And you talk in the book about a specific deal. Tell the story of that transaction where you had that disagreement because that may pull this together a little bit. Yeah. So we were, our CEO really wanted to buy a company in Europe and we already had a European operation. So it was a bolt-on. Right. And for various reasons, anyway, nobody in the management team wanted to buy it. Nobody. Even the person who ran Europe didn't want to buy it. And um, he didn't want to listen. I mean, literally there wasn't one person I thought in this camp, but so he flew to a certain island to meet the CEO of this company and cut a deal on his own. And they called me up and said, meet your new partner. Wow. And I said, I said, wow, we were buying this company for uh, 500 million pounds, which was $750 million. And there was not a person in the company, including our CFO that could come up with a number higher than 500 million as dollars as the right price. I mean, literally it's too, we thought we were paying overpaying by $250 million and we were scratching our heads. Like, why is it that he wants to buy this company so bad? This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And not even talk to us about it. It was right. nuts. And I was a board member also. We were both board members, he and I. And he said to me under no uncertain, uh, we had to vote for the deal because it was over, over a certain limit. Right. And he said, under no uncertain circumstance, will you not vote for this deal in the board meeting? And I, I want you to basically shut up and not say anything about it in the board meeting so we can get through the board. I said, well, I can't do that. And he said, well, that's what you are going to do. And um, the long and short of it was that I didn't do that. And unfortunately, I talked to all the board members about it before the board meeting. And the deal basically got shot down. They didn't get shot down. They said, we'll do it. 
but we'll do it only under the circumstance that Walt and somebody else renegotiate the deal and we need a $250 million price cut, which by the way, the seller gave us and we did end up buying it uh, ironically, but it was egg on his face. Yeah. It was egg, egg on all of our faces that, you know, why can't your board's looking at us like, why can't you guys communicate right? right. and come to an agreement on this before it even gets to this point? And I just realized that I couldn't stay in an environment like that. I mean, it was just right. not, not right. And so I left. Basically, by the end of 2007, I decided the right thing was for me to leave the company. And um, that deal was just one hitch in the decision. You know, that was just one data point in the decision. But just to give you, by way of example, the kinds of things that were happening in the organization. Right. And, and it's the data point that makes it real. So I, I told the board I wanted to leave. They, they basically said, you need to kiss and make up. We actually tried for a couple of weeks and it just we weren't going to make up. And, um, you know, by that time, honestly, he, he probably, to his defense, he probably felt like I betrayed him Yeah, because I did, I had to, mm-hmm. in order to be transparent with the board. And, uh, you know, so from his perspective, he was fine with me leaving. The board was not fine with me leaving, but anyway, it, it happened and the stock was trading at an all-time high. This is January of 2008, just prior to the downturn. Right. So we're trading at that time. At roughly 20, I think it was $72 a share, which equated to an equity market cap of about $22 billion or so, if my numbers are right. It was over a little over $20 billion, I think. And I left. And I, I actually was going back and forth. I was trying to help the company on certain things. So I technically still had a job, but I, I had really checked out. And uh, the board knew I checked out. Everybody wanted, you know, he wanted me to check out, be checked out. And I'm sitting there watching the stock. And, you know, and of course, 2008, the S&P 500 is down close to 40% on the year, right? So, you know, let's put things into context. It was a bad year. And so the whole market starts trading off. And, you know, in March, the stock's at, I don't know, 60 bucks a share. And, you know, by June, the stock is cut in half. It's maybe 30 bucks a share or 35 bucks a share. And I'm like, whoa, man, stock's down 50%. This is amazing. And, but the S&P 500 is probably down 20, 30% at the time. And so it doesn't seem that out of line. And all of a sudden, then the S&P 500 starts kind of, you know, finding its bottom and our stock just keeps going down. By September, it's like, I don't know, $15 a share. By October, it's, by the end of October, it's $5 a share. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what is going to happen? And I get a call the first week in November from the lead director of the board and he said, Walt, I, you were right. We've made some mistakes. We did overpay for assets. We did over leverage the company. We did make some mistakes and we allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. We need you to come back and turn it around. And, you know, if you say yes, we're going to move on with the CEO. Mm-hmm. And um, man, I'll tell you what, I, I struggled. You talk about having to pray. That, that, was, right. that was my moment. I had to pray a lot about this. And I said, well, how long do I have? He said, 24 hours. And, um, so I, you know, I talked over with my wife and I thought about all the people that I had hired there over the years. And, you know, I had only been gone for 10 months. So I felt like I knew where some of the skeletons were in the closet. And right. I decided to, that I would come back. Uh-huh. And at that point in time, you know, we were, I think we had a little over $10 billion of debt coming due in the next 12 to 18 months. Right. We were over 100% levered by, because the market value had fallen in real estate at that point in time. And I was even more concerned, Matt, about our people. I mean, they had absolutely lost confidence in the board. They had lost confidence in leadership. Right. Lacked the very trust that I was talking to you about. And, you know, we needed to change that. 
So uh, I started my journey in a crucible moment when the company was literally on the verge of bankruptcy and I decided to come back. Yeah. I don't know if I was stupid or if I was smart at the time <laughs> or what, but I did. <laughs> That's what well, I ended up doing. This was it. And this, this causes our story. But let's go back for a second. I'm curious about a couple things. And you already said it, but I just wanted to, to, to dive into a little bit. One is how much of this was the GFC and how much was the behavior of the company? And I, yeah. I, if we track your competitor, AMB, which will come back into the story, I'm thinking they came out of this stressed but healthy. I'm just guessing. And then also how much of this, you were this guy's partner for years and you saw these behaviors happening, but you weren't able to change them. That had to be massively frustrating because you end up leaving, but you knew where the skeletons were. I did. Um, how much of it was the market? I, I think the best way of saying that is that the whole market was down. I think the number was 38%. Let's just call it 40 right. for the moment on the year. And we were down 96 and percent. We right. were going into the time I was hired in early November. We were the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500 hmm. behind AIG, who was down I think 99%, they would later be taken over by the federal government and GGP, general growth properties, who did go bankrupt. Right. Right. So we were the third worst performing stock behind those two in the S&P 500. So we were down 96% and the market's down 40%. Mm -hmm. So what's the relative, you know, how much of it was us and how much of it was the market? I think that kind of- This is you. I mean, that that tells you, right? I mean, probably half of it was- was the market and half of it was bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But I think that's probably the way of looking at it. So you come back and tell the story of the bump on your head. I want to hear the bump story because it all came together with what this challenge was. So, you know, the first thing on my mind as the CEO of the company is how do I build trust in the organization? How do I build trust? And, and, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a moment, but that's what the book is about. Mm-hmm. And I think building trust starts with the notion that it's not about you, mm-hmm. but it is about the influence you have on other people. And part of that really occurred to me one night when we were on the verge of bankruptcy. So we had a late night and this was after midnight. All I can remember is, it, I mean, it might, might've been one o'clock in the morning when we were working dog years to try to turn this company around. Right. And I was together with predominantly financial people in a room. And we were talking about, if you will, our financial future, including how bad our earnings were going to look at the end of the year. This is in December. I've been there for a month. Okay. And including one of our people raised the fact that uh, he said, well, well, we have some real problems here with our bond covenants. And I, I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, um, well, we're going to be in technical violation of our bond covenants and blow them. And a couple of them were cross collateralized. And it's like, right. you know, I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, we're probably going to blow at least covenants on at least six, seven billion dollars in bonds. I said, when? He said, by probably January next month, certainly next quarter. Right. And I said, whoa, okay, well, what does that mean? And somebody looks at the room silent. Somebody goes, well, well, that probably means we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And, you know, bankruptcy was always out there. Wall Street Journal did an article about how we could go bankrupt and, you know, all this stuff and always was in the back of my mind. But it's like no one ever told me it was going to happen next quarter. Right. Well, my face turned white as a ghost. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do. I look around the room. I said, man, I felt like I was going to faint, Matt. I look around the room. I said, do you guys mind if I go get a drink of water? And they said, no, no, it's all right. Well, go ahead. So I go down the hallway 
and exactly what I thought was going to happen. I, my legs felt like butter. And um, I saw this uh, the, the office that was ahead of me with a desk and with a chair. And I thought, man, if I could get to that chair and just sit down, that'd be good. And I started to almost like sort of try to run towards it. And um, I didn't make it. I missed the chair and I fainted. And on my way down, the corner of my head hit the corner of the desk and split my head open. So now I'm laying on the ground for what turned out to be about 10 minutes. Then I wake up and there's a pool of blood on the floor. I have no idea where I am. I'm looking around. I'm like, where am I? And about 30 seconds later, it comes to me. Oh my gosh, all these people are still in the room waiting for me. We're on the verge of bankruptcy. This is not fun. This is not a good thing. So all of a sudden I go to the bathroom. I suture my head up as best I could. I have a huge egg on my head by this time. And I go in and the first thing I said was, okay, well, let's talk about this bankruptcy thing. And I think it was my chief financial officer, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> he says, first of all, let's talk about that stupid egg on your head. Man. How did that get there, right? And I thought to myself, busted. Yeah. And I remember looking around the room and it was a vulnerable moment for me. Yeah. And I said, you know, I remember saying something like, you know, guys, you asked me, the board asked me to come back and turn around this company. And that's been the only thing I'm focused on. And when you said we're going bankruptcy, I feel like one, I failed, I'm failing. And two, most importantly, I don't know how to do it. Like, I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm some, some CEO, I'm supposed to have the answers, right? right? But I don't have any answers. And it was a vulnerable moment. And, and I, I remember somebody said to me after about 10 seconds, which seemed like a minute, someone said to me, you know what, well, let us go back and think about this. Maybe there's a creative way we can avoid this. And I go, I said, that'd be great. And I realized that there is actually power in vulnerability, mm -hmm. but most leaders don't want to use it mm -hmm. because it makes them look like they're not a leader, at least in their mind. Right. But what it really does sometimes, and I don't think you should be this all the time, but it really is empowering to people. In some respects, you sort of walk away with this, hey, we're all in this sort of attitude. Walt doesn't know the answer, man. We got to figure this out. You know, we got the right. CEO doesn't know how to deal with this, man. We got to figure this <laughs> thing out or we're not going to make it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that vulnerability was actually quite powerful at the moment. And what it told my employees um, all around the table was, I don't have all the answers you do. You're the ones that are empowered to do it. Come back to me when you've got the answers, you know, and uh, I'm going to create the environment for you to have those answers. And I'm going to create it such that you feel empowered to say it, mm -hmm. not me saying it. And you know what? They did. They came up with the answer, not me. They right. did. Right. And we, ne we never declared bankruptcy. We never declared bankruptcy. It's just amazing how we got around it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the answer is multiple small answers. I'm thinking not, okay. Small answers. But, but, but one big answer, the one big answer was that we sold our China operation. Mm -hmm. And when we sold our China operation, we, and part of our Japan operation, we generated a billion and a half dollars of cash. Right. And we used that cash to, in essence, pay down debt and also have discussions with lenders and bondholders and the like mm -hmm. 
that allowed us to rejigger our covenants that then allowed us to gave us a little bit more room. And then we had to continue to sell assets to pay down, you know, to do the things that we said we were going to do, but we did Mm -hmm. and we got relief from it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the first thing on my mind wasn't selling our China operation, but turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And we actually had a buyer that wanted to buy it. Right. It's interesting. I'm thinking of you in that room. And I think you have two choices. You could come back with this bump on your head. And I I use this in my company. You could be Atlas. You could be, okay, I'm going to bulk up. I'm going to run twice as hard. I'm going to eat a whole ton of spinach and I'm just going to solve this sucker. Or you tell the truth, which is, hey, we're in this together. If we don't all get this done together as a team, this just, I can't do it alone. That's exactly right. And I talk a lot in the book about transparency. And I think that was a moment of transparency where, you know, and when people see vulnerability, Mm -hmm. it's actually believable because who in the hell wants to be vulnerable like that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not easy. Right. But it does create an air of transparency and believability mm-hmm. that then creates trust in the organization. Yeah. So I want to get to the end game so we can talk about your book. But so talk about how long between that moment and and how far did you get in turning the company around before it merged with AMB? I'd say till we were really in solid shape and uh, it took you know, selling $7 billion of assets. It, it took doing $3 billion of equity offerings as the stock price began to rise, which unfortunately was dilutive to shareholders, but was the only way out. Yeah. And it took a complete restructuring of our covenants. And it, it took a lot of work on, uh, from the perspective of a lot of people. But we got to a point where we were pretty rock solid. And A and B was rock solid at the time too. But Hamid and I had a conversation whereby we both agreed the combined company would be so much stronger than any of the companies would be individually and that our cost of capital would be so much cheaper over time if we could combine the companies. And both of our companies were trading at almost the exact same relative multiple and discount or premium. At that time, it was, it was really neither discount nor premium. We were both trading right at NAV. Mm-hmm. So you um, took it, it from collapse to equal to the other guys in terms of yeah. its performance. So you are now in back to par. Performance multiple and everything, yes. So it was a perfect time because it's hard to do a merger of equals with no premium paid by any company when one company is not trading at a same the same multiple as the other or at the same discount or premium to NAV, then you're going to have a lot of upset investors that you're essentially selling the company or giving away the company if you're the company that is at a discount to NAV, for example, to someone else putting together a company at the same multiple. So we were at that moment where it was perfect for that. And then the other big thing is that I had already gone to my board six months to a year in advance of that and told them that, I came back for a reason, and that was to turn around the company, but I did not come back to, in essence, stay in that role forever. So, you know, when you run a global company, it takes a toll on you. You really have to love that. And I just got to a point where I didn't love it anymore. And merging with A and B just made a hell of a lot of sense because we could take one and one and put it together and become four. How much of one and one coming together and how much of a merger of equals kind of requires someone ready and willing to step out of the CEO role? Because most times CEO wants that gig and wants that continued role. I won't call that ego because it's, 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 it's deeper than that. 
But that is one of the causalities of these things coming together or en enablers of them coming together. Huge way. Yeah, that's why they don't happen for the most yeah. part. And that's what made the merger so beautiful because both shareholder bases benefited. You know, I think we cut, and, and this is hard because we cut, you know, we had to let go of people, but I think we cut GNA by, I'm going to guess $200 million. So, you know, I don't know, we were trading at probably a 15 multiple at the time, you know? So that's $3 billion of value creation right there by putting the two organizations together. That's just a start. Prologis was developing probably $2 billion a year. A&B was probably developing a billion or a billion and a half a year. By putting those two developments together, not putting two buildings up across the street from each other, but actually doing the right thing, building one. Right. Think about the synergies there and think about you know the ability to lease a building quicker. Then our cost of capital was, we think it was at least worth 50 basis points in terms of our debt and, and probably at the one or two turns on our equity of uh, being able to access the capital markets in a better way back then. And we just looked at it and we, we actually thought we were going to create, you know, five plus billion dollars of shareholder value just by right putting away. the two companies together. Voila. And really all it took was truly one of the two CEOs not wanting to be there anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and I was the one and I told all my shareholders that I said, look, at the end of the day, you're all going to benefit by the fact that I'm tired and I'm, I'm ready. I'd been here for, I had been to the company for 20 years. Right. And um, I was just ready to rock and roll and do something different. Mm -hmm. What was it like being co-CEOs and with Hamid? And then you've talked so much about culture and the wrong yeah. culture versus the right culture. And yeah. did the right culture come out of the resulting entity? Yeah, the right culture absolutely came out of it. What was it like being co-CEO? Uh, I'd say Hamid's one of the smartest guys, smartest I've, ever guys met. I've ever met. <laughs> no question about yeah. it. And um, so I felt really good about, you know, who was going to take over the combined company. There was no doubt in my mind there. We worked, I think we worked really well together. Do I think that co-CEO can work long-term in any company? It's pretty hard. Um, but- you know, it was great because my role in the company, and we, by the way, we did this for a year and a half. Right. I don't know if you remember that, but um, yeah. my role in the company was transition, was make the merger work. His role in the company was make the company run. And because that was what he was going to do long-term, right? Run the right. Company, company. And we needed to have a watchdog day to day over making sure that the transition of putting the people together was, was going to work because- Remember, this wasn't an acquisition. This wasn't one company firing all the employees of the other company. Right. This was, let's put the two together and let's take the best people out of both. And let's not be biased about who the best is. Mm -hmm. And ironically, we ended up keeping the same blend of people. Prologis probably had 60% of the people. A&B had 40% of the people. And, and at the end of the day, when we made all the decisions as to who was going to stay and who was going to leave, the combined workforce was still Prologis 60, A and B 40, or it was something like that, right? right? So interestingly enough, we let go of an equal amount on both sides, relatively speaking, but making all of those decisions and holding people's hands mm -hmm. and teaching them to work together um, with people that they hadn't worked together in the past with made the merger of equals so much more difficult mm -hmm. than a acquisition of a company. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? And so I stuck around for a year and a half sort of led those efforts. And I think they turned out to be really, really good. And so Hamid and I worked together as co-CEOs because we had two defined responsibilities and we got along mm -hmm. and we came back together and talked a lot and we were always on the same page and nobody in the company could 
drive a wedge between the two of us. And that's what was important. Critical, critical. It's interesting because you describe Hamid, who I know a bit, but it's one of, the, one of the smartest guys you've ever met, but you also described Jeff Schwartz with the same words. So smarts doesn't cause the success in terms of culture, vision, direction of a company that works well. Hamid will listen to people. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, don't get me wrong, he understands what he wants to do, but he will listen to people and he can change, you know, and that's, you know, great leaders listen. So let's school. use that exact line to segue into your book, because one of your chapters, I think, was on listening. What caused you to write the book? And then kind of let's pivot. And we've covered many of the themes from your book in this conversation, but we haven't covered the word transfluence. So we have to, I want to think about where that word comes from, what the book is yeah. and what it means to you and what you hope to accomplish from it. Okay. So real quick, what caused me to write the book, I mentioned before, I, I think there's a void in leadership, but I, I just want to go back real quick. I'll go back to 1979, took my first job. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, it was command and control leadership back then. Right. I was happy to be employed. Leadership paid no attention to culture. Leadership was granted to those who did their time. Um, and it was their, their time. Nobody was critical. There was no chat rooms. <laughs> you know, there no was critical of leaderships, no vocal, nobody vocal. It was a transactional job. I got paid to do a certain thing and I was happy to be employed. That's what it was in 1979. You know, when I took over as CEO, fast forward, I received over a thousand urgent calls, emails, texts, everything from the world. And this is on day one. I am not kidding you. Yeah, I bet. Okay. And this is equity and bond investors. This is sell side analysts. This is rating agencies, right? These are news publications. This is the, the you know, the mayor of Denver, you name it, mm -hmm. right? And online chats were rampant about, you know, how's, how's Walt going to do? You know, is he, he going to do this or isn't he going to do this, right? Our employees wanted answers. We had to do town hall meeting quickly, you know, mm -hmm. and um, we went to Wall Street the next day and sat in front of a thousand investors and held their hands and and talked to them humbly about how we were, we were going to do this. Right. And it dawned on me as I was writing the book, you know, we live in a world with greater access to information, more diversity in people, accelerating progress. Right. And on one hand, they create tremendous opportunities. And on the other hand, they create tremendous challenges for leaders because unfortunately we all live in glass houses right where everybody can see everything we can do right and so i i was in a glass house and i wanted to write it from a leadership perspective because i think that's what leadership is going to be about more in the future than the old command and control type leadership right it's about mm -hmm. leading with a heart it's about showing people empathy it's about loving on people really i mean and and so i wrote the book Transfluence, and Transfluence stands for transformational influence, mm -hmm. right? And I think as a leader, you've got a lot of objectives, okay? But I think your most important one is actually the influence that you have on other people. And if you go to work with that mindset, that it's not about you, it's about the influence you have on other people, I think you'll succeed in building trust in your organization as a leader. You mentioned um, in an email to me coming into this that you picked up on something I said. I, I think leadership is more about the journey than it is the result. Don't get me wrong. The result is important. My result. Right. Well, turn around the company, stupid. That's your result. That's what you need to do. Okay, But but the fact is, in order to turn around the company, it's all about the journey and getting there. Right. Okay, And if you do the journey right, 
if you invest time in the people that work for you and you show them that you care, all right, and you make them better at what they do, sort of like my boss did at Trammell Crow Company many years ago. All he cared about was making me better at what I did. And therefore, your influence in their lives is great. They will trust you. And they will wake up every morning killing to work with you and killing to make your company that whatever you want and your result really good. But you've got to care more about them than you do yourself. And that's what Transfluence is all about. It's about building transformational influence in the lives of other people, which I think is the methodology to building trust. Mm -hmm. And in the times before when you started in your career, when there wasn't the internet, when there wasn't that level of, you didn't live, leaders did not live in a glass house. It's funny, I, I didn't feel that shift in the book as much as you're saying it right now out loud, which yeah. is these times demand a totally different kind of leader because you can't get away with that other behavior. You can't get away with the other behavior. And part of the reason, I know I, know I do state this in the book is, because of social media today, because right. of the, the world that we live in, expectations of people are much, of leaders, mm -hmm. are much higher today than they ever were. Because right. The reason is because we know more about you. And you have to understand that as a leader, because your people know more about you than they ever, ever have. And not only that, in this world, you've got to be out there talking about your vision and, and you know, where the company is heading. And this, I mean, you just have to be public with so many more things. And I just think the expectation of leaders is just so much higher today than it ever was. And we have to be mindful of that. We have to, we have to meet that expectation. And when we start looking like in the marketplace, like it's all about us, people pick up on that really quickly and they lose trust overnight. Absolutely true. It's funny, we're gonna talk about real estate and we're gonna talk about your lessons, although I wanna go political a little bit because it's the opposite of fake news. It's the opposite of hubris. In the time of COVID, you have to tell the truth, even if the truth is evolving, if the leader, does, and back to modeling behavior, right? If you don't model the right behavior and the right values, this all doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And in this day and age, we have to, you know, COVID has really brought this to light. Totally. You know, we have to be more flexible. We have to be more empathetic. We have to manage more with a heart. I mean, you know, you've got dogs barking in the background. you got babies crying in the background. If you can't be sympathetic to that, you can't be sympathetic to anything. I mean, that's tough. I was just on a conference call this morning with a big four accounting person. And she's a partner. And, you know, and she's got kids running all around the, the living room and behind her. Right. And she's, she apologized to me like three, four times. I was like, don't worry about it. Right. But, you know, leaders have to be empathetic towards that and, and understand that there's never been a melding before like there is today of personal lives and business lives. And that melding is literally every minute. In fact, it's real time. It's happening at the same time. Right. So, I think leaders have to understand that. And don't get me wrong. I think corporate America is doing a, a reasonably good job of it. But if, it, if, you, if you can't be that way as a leader, you can't function in this marketplace. You just can't. Oh, absolutely true. What part of what you just said do you think snaps back to the way before? Not command and control leadership. That, that's done because we have the internet and we have social media. But what part of the intimacy, if that's the right word, of this woman with the kids running around who's a partner, right, 
snaps back to normal when she's in the office? Or have we a window into less layers between people that's going to continue to last? Oh, I think it's changed forever. That's not to say that we're not going to go back to the office. I think we will right. go back to the office, but I think it'll be a hybrid model. And I can tell you that whatever's changed in the last year has just been accelerated. That's all. It's not going back to the way we used to think of it. And we are going to have to understand that we manage people in a world that is um, a world of automation. <laughs> it's not a world of, I'm, I see you every day. It is a world where you know, I see you for a couple minutes and then I don't see you the rest of the day and I might not see you for a day or two, right? Mm -hmm. I have to trust you. I have to trust that you're going to get done what you are going to get done. And I, and because, because I'm going to empower you. And when I trust you, my, my sense is that my probabilities are much higher if I treat you with dignity, respect, and as a person that you like and you trust in return. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally I, true. So yeah. let's go back to, because you talked about the journey a few moments ago, and I don't think it's an either or. I don't think it's a, hey, respect the journey and we'll get there. I think it's a duality with the journey and the treatment of people standing alongside hard, hard-ass results. Oh, and, well, okay. Let's put it this way. I don't, do, I don't disagree with you at all. When I say the journey, I'm not talking about let's be nice to each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, being nice to each other is, is important, but, but that's not what those four people wanted to hear. Okay. I mm -hmm. wasn't being a nice guy, right? but I was brutally transparent. Okay. And I was very communicative. I told people what I thought I listened, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I was the CEO. I had to make decisions and people all don't always love those decisions. The, the message that that told everybody else that worked in the company mm -hmm. was that Walt was brutally honest. He was serious about turning this company around. He's going to do whatever he thinks is the right thing to do. He listened to everybody in making the decision, but he made, and he made a tough decision. Not everybody's happy. And so it is about the journey, and it's not about being nice to people. It is about being humble, which means listening mm -hmm. to people. Right? It is about being honest, which means communicating, which means trans being transparent, which means recognizing that when your silence is not always golden, but it, it, you know, your, si your silence can sometimes kill you. And it's about being human. It's about empowering people, lifting them up, making them better at what they do. And sometimes those messages are tough. And sometimes those messages aren't so tough, but they always require that you be one of those three. You know? And I think if you are that way, then you will get the results. Mm -hmm. uh, that you're looking for in an organization. Mm -hmm. I agree, and it's totally true. Sometimes in, in, in our world, so we're a, a run a recruiting firm, and the result's what matters, right? The, the, the right butt in the chair is what's going to matter at the end of the day. But we always tell our clients the journey along the way is learning. You learn about your competition. You learn about yourself. And yeah. that makes for a better decision. Because yeah. if you just get the but that goes in the chair versus the journey that helps you understand what that's going to be, then you leave so much off the table, but then also the success of the venture is going to be much more limited. And one of the things you learn, it's interesting, and this hasn't come up in the conversation, but I think it's true, is over time, one does gain maturity of perspective and maturity of experience. And you add all these experiences up, and then you're able to be transparent quickly I agree, but let, let me be a little bit careful with what I say. One of the things I had to train myself to do 
Listen. is when I walked into the room as CEO, not say anything for the longest time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would, it's, it's one of the exercises I always tell leaders, try to go into a meeting for an hour and not say a damn thing, especially if you're the top person. Right. Try doing that. Most people would find that really hard. And they're quick to talk about their opinion on something, which unfortunately changes the dynamic of the room and because nobody wants to go against what the leader has to say. What I really had to work at in my career is listening to people. And I mean, truly listening without giving an opinion until I had to. Mm-hmm. And if that one of your weaknesses against this, as I read your book, I kept thinking, okay, where am I strong? What's natural? And where are my natural weaknesses as against these aspirations? Yeah, man, I'm a big believer in coaching. Mm-hmm. I really am. And um, I had a coach one time. He said to me, Walt, I'm, I got some good news and bad news for you. And I said, okay, give me the good news first. He said, the good news is everybody likes working with you. I said, well, that's great. Can we stop there? And he said, no. He said, the bad news is your empathy scores aren't all that high. I was like, you know what? That was like putting a dagger in my heart. I mean, I think I'm, I actually think I'm sure. a fairly empathetic person. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not, well, I won't even go down that rabbit trap, but I think um, I'm better than many. Let's put it that way. I said, well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, well, what I mean is that you've had, a, there are a number of comments from your direct reports that you run around like a chicken with your head cut off and they have no idea how to approach you in your office. By the way, they're not saying that you're going to shoo them out of the room or that you're going to get ticked off at them for coming in. Nothing. Nobody thinks you'll do that, but they just, out of respect for you, right. they don't want to bother you mm-hmm. because they can see that you're focused, right? And I realized to myself that, you know, here I am. I'm thinking I'm the person turning around the company. No, no, I'm not. They are. And I need to pay more attention to them, not myself, right? That was hard. That was really, really hard. And so I think that part of this leadership journey in all of us is recognizing that we all have issues and being willing to address them. Now, not everybody has the luxury of having a personal coach. And I understand that. But I think you should, whether it be personal accountability groups or whether it be personal board of directors, you should try to assemble people around your life that are willing to be honest with you, brutally honest about who you are. And you should not shy away from 360 degree evaluations, no matter who you are and encourage your direct reports to tell you it like it is, because while it's hard, it's like putting a dagger in your heart. It's in essence, it's really the best thing for you from a leadership perspective to know those things. Totally agree. Well, talk a little bit about your board work and particularly about Ventas. And I'm so curious because Ventas, which is a senior care nursing home industry REIT, has been greatly impacted about COVID and other crisis crucible moment, certainly for their CEO. So talk about your leadership there. There's very few CEOs that are better than Debbie Cafaro. She's amazing. <laughs> that much. She is, she is uh, terrific. And, uh, you know, Debbie's got it under control. And you know what? But even that, Debbie does a great job of calling you from time to time and saying, how would you, you know, how would you deal with this? Even though she's a pro, she's been in the business for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, right? And she still calls up and says, well, Walt, you know, how did you deal with this and that? But I love that sort of humility in leaders where they're not know-it-all 
they actually are confident that they know how to handle something, but they're willing to still ask. I can't tell Debbie anything that she doesn't already know, but she's humble enough to still ask me. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So the last question on leading voices is always, what would your advice be to a young person getting into the real estate business? Well, I would say stay curious. And so when I took my job at, at Trammell Crow Company, they started you out basically at the bottom of the rung, you know, kind of, you had to market their buildings. I mean, you had to lease space for three years, right? Right. And I always thought there's a lot of people in the business that enter the business through the finance side of the business. They never see leasing and marketing. They never see construction. <laughs> they never see design. You know, they never see what city government getting permits at city government really is like in development, you know, side of the business. And mm -hmm. I think my son's in real estate. I've encouraged him. He started off in the brokerage business. Now he's in the financial side of the business. I keep encouraging him, you know, in his 20s. I said, learn as many aspects of the business as you can. Because at some point in time, it's really a matter of putting it all together. And those people that can put it all together, I think are actually have the highest propensity of being mm -hmm. really successful in the business. And so I, I would say to your audience, stay curious, ask questions, be humble and absorb all you can. It's wonderful advice to live by. I totally agree with all of this. Walt, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your book. We will refer to your book in the show notes, Transfluence. It was a great read, really helpful for me as well. And thank you again. You're welcome. Write a review on Amazon too. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.